This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Welcome to episode 27 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and great as always to be here with you. And joining me again for this very special part two episode is Paul Bindig. G'day, David. How's it going? Good. So here we are again. Um, For those that listened to episode 26, we covered the first half or so of David K. Matthews' brilliant career. And this is the second part where we get into the nitty gritties of everything um, up to and including Santana. But there's a lot more in there than that as well. So enjoy part two and we'll see you after the show. So obviously that level of versatility and variety that you were doing at that stage um, strengthened your career further. So what what would be a third uh, career highlight? I think I know what it's going to be, Dave, but it's still your choice. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And we can well, cover yeah, Santana pretty, after the three if you want to pick a, th- yeah. a different third it's one. Pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty obvious. I mean, um, and, uh, you know, from her I learned uh, the value of uh, – of, uh, simplicity and emotional honesty um and uh sincerity how to how to communicate uh paint paint in, uh, with the broad brush strokes paint in primary colors get tell the story get the get the feeling across and that's Etta james yeah yeah um i played with her for about 20 years mm. uh and um, we did an average of about 50 gigs a year, wow. uh, uh, which is, you know, not a lot compared to, you know, with the Santana band, you know, I've been doing that for 10 years. It could be, it could be 70 to 80 gigs a year, but with Etta, um, you know, physically she wasn't, I don't think it, she wasn't, you know, uh, able to uh, work no. as much. Um, and the, and the working conditions weren't as, they weren't as optimal as, and the money wasn't as good for her as it mm-hmm. certainly is. You know, I mean, Carlos is Santana has sold over a hundred million records and Etta James is a catalog artist. Yeah. She's yeah. made 40 or 50 records, but, um, but she's a legend oh, and she's one of the all time greatest, one of the all time greatest American female, uh, American, you know, uh, vocalists, uh, really right up there with, uh, you know, just, I mean, the, I mean, I, I, it's kind of hard to compare. 
mm-hmm. up there with Dinah Washington or Ella Fitzgerald or Billie Holiday yeah. or or um, she's not a jazz singer per se, but she. I actually, a lot of people compare her to Aretha, uh, and they were friends mm-hmm. uh, and colleagues from what I from what I know. I never met Aretha myself, but um, Etta never had the commercial success like through Atlantic Records that Aretha had through with Jerry Wexler and and uh, Arif, you know, Arif Arndine and and the the, the Erdogan brothers and. But uh, Edo was certainly respected as an artist. Um, struggled with drug problems, uh, drug drug and addiction issues, and then um, and then with weight issues later on in life. And I know Aretha did too, but um, was certainly with weight issues. But uh, uh, I'd have to say that you know, for me, when I when I started playing with Edda, I had come out of the Tower of Power kind of uh bay area kind of vibe and i was used to playing in bands where you cut the notes off short that's right things were choppy funky and etta really she didn't want to org she never told first of all she never told me how to play never told anybody how to play if you didn't play something that she liked you would know but she wouldn't be specific she's just uh, with her it was an emotional thing Mm. and um i learned uh the power from her i mean i'm not saying that i have the power but i watched her i saw her power and her ability to communicate um deep emotional i was more of a like thinking about the notes you know this is things sound this way to me the notes the chords Mm -hmm. well with her it was all about the lyrics the story she's a storyteller she's just like a like an African griot or, you know, I don't even know if that's the right cultural term. I don't even know. I don't even know, but I mean, she could communicate across a wide spectrum of people and, and get them to feel what she was feeling. And, uh, that's an, really an important part of the, uh, that's a very, uh, being able to tell the story or to get to people, getting people to, to, feel what you're trying to express uh uh you could call it i could maybe as a pianist i would call it creating atmosphere or creating a, an atmosphere uh, i think dr john he's he said you know painting pretty pictures or, or pretty colors and i i remember hearing him say that once or i remember chester thompson saying uh making you know making colors and uh Oh, those things are all, I think that music in a, in a lot of ways is analogous to other art forms, uh, uh, like painting, uh, or, um, making, uh, creating images, uh, and moving people emotionally, um, through that. And I'd have to say that she's probably, uh, I've, I learned a lot more from her on a gut level. I guess, yeah, one of the things I learned from her is to just reach deep inside and just, just, uh, I guess it's on an animal level. Just if you have to moan and groan and scream it out and, and yell and sweat and, and, and shiver, uh, if that's what it takes to get it out, Mm -hmm. get it out. 
because she did that's that was her she was a very one of the most honest communicators on an emotional level um musically that i've ever seen and i've seen her i've seen her move people incredibly yeah so that's i I put her at the top of the list actually yeah no i mean that i mean that and i love her yeah I was about to say that must have been I love her. when she passed in 2012, and I, uh, her performing career had ended a, f- a few years before that day. But not that that's any consolation. But you know, she she had a real. She bad. um. Uh, she uh, She had to stop singing. In it was in 2009, yeah. just the very beginning of the year. I think that we um, um, she started having memory issues. And, she, you know, she had had a gastric bypass surgery in 2000, had lost a lot of weight of 300 pounds, probably wow. yeah. uh, lost maybe a little bit too much weight and didn't um, because she didn't really didn't really have that much <laughs> guidance, um, no. didn't didn't know how to, uh, you know, take how to how to make sure that you take your vitamin supplements yeah. make sure that you drink enough water she you know she didn't have um uh through whatever dysfunction in her own life and her family life or um she just wasn't able to keep that stuff together and um the sad thing is is that if, right at the very end of her career she was able to command uh more money uh um, as far as, uh, um, you know, getting gigs and she was more in demand. She could have worked almost every day if she wanted to, she could have, uh, she could have been had a very busy touring career and she was getting paid more than she'd ever been paid before. And a lot of celebrities wanted her to play at their weddings. Uh, uh, people, you know, she was, uh, she was in vogue in that sense. And she could have really capitalized on that and, and be, I mean, she was living comfortably uh, later in her life. She did, you know, she did pretty well, but she wasn't, um, she wasn't a, a, a mega superstar by any means, uh, but she could have. So that's, that was sad because um, as her health declined, when her career was really on an upswing in terms of uh, her career tra- trajectory, um, it just, she just kind of, it, it, everything just kind of uh, stopped and kind of ended sort of with a whimper, you could say, just yes. like a, yeah. it kind of just gr- ground to a halt and she couldn't perform anymore. And then she was the, the, the mother and wife at home with dementia and various health issues and was maybe not, I think she was just shy of her 73rd birthday before she passed away. And that's, that's pretty young, uh, uh, older, certainly older than other people. And, and she, um, she lived a lot of lifetimes in her life, mm. but it was sad to see. And I, and I, I loved her like uh, a family, you know, I felt like I was yeah. part of her family and, um, and, uh, I carry her, I keep her, uh, yeah. close to my heart Absolutely. to this day. Yeah, right. yeah th- thanks, for, thanks for sharing that, Dave. Um, obviously, you know, hugely impactful and, and a big part of your career too. Um, so, yeah, re- really appreciate it. <laughs> she was a beautiful person. I mean, 
I yeah. wouldn't want to be married to her. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, she could be a hand, you know, she could be a handful. Um, sure. In 20 years, I think, I think she might've only been really angry or shown me that she was angry at me maybe one time, once or twice. Uh, she was pretty nice to me. And actually the longer I played with her, the, the closer and closer I felt uh, to her. I felt mm. I was a little intimidated by her at first. You know, she, a big, powerful woman. Yeah. And big, powerful voice. And, but, you know, I got to know her and, and, um, and I became really, I really grew to love her very much. And, and, you know, the thing is she wasn't a hypocrite. She was, uh, or, uh, that's the other thing, the lesson I think that I learned from her is that, um, she's incredibly genuine. Uh, she didn't take herself too seriously. I think she knew she was good. She knew she was good, but she was also insecure, Mm -hmm. but she, um, was, uh, very real about as real as you can get. Not a phony. And that's in my, in my, in my world, that's very important. Yeah, it's probably one of the best qualities you can have as a person, isn't it? Is to just be yourself and be genuine. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, so there you have it. <laughs> yeah, three three amazing highlights. Thank thank you so much, Dave. I I think uh, these days you you're probably best known currently as the keyboard player for Santana, um, which which must also be a, another highlight getting to perform with that band. I'm sure. Um, I'm, great. I'm really interested, um, and I know our listeners will be too, in currently, um, obviously currently no one's touring, but let's say we were, what, what's, what are you currently using in your rig with Santana? What, what are you taking on stage with you at the moment? Okay. By the way, I just saw Carlos today for the first time in about seven months. Well, um, okay. I'm going to be recording. We're going to be, uh, re- he's in the Bay Area right now, and we're going to be recording um, starting this Monday, some of the guys, some of the folks in the band, part of the rhythm section, he's, he just wants to work on some different things. He's got some ideas for some things and we're going to be recording next week at an undisclosed, uh, place. And, um, uh, I brought some, a little bit of my gear over there today. Um, cause he's got some ideas and some things he wants to do. And I got a lot of work to do over the next couple of days. He sent me a lot of music that I'm going to listen wow. to or transcribe some things. And uh, what I'm using in my road rig, it's kind of evolved over the last 10 years. But the the first, the, the main component has always been a Hammond B3 organ. And what I, because it's it's an organ gig, it's like Tower of Power was an organ gig. Yep. And it's kind of funny because CT was the organ, was the keyboard player for Santana before I ended up getting the gig and he was the same thing with towers. I'm kind of following in his footsteps again, which is cool for me because he's one of my heroes. He, and he's pretty much retired yeah. at this point. I think he's 75. He might be 76. Um, and, uh, uh, I have two, uh, road chop, ha- chop, we call them chopped ham and organs. Uh, cr- yep. CT had, one of the original style, um, Bill Beer, B-E-E-R, out of L.A., the keyboard products model chopped organs. Um, um, Bill Beer passed away maybe 15, 20 years ago, and he was very secretive as to how he, uh, uh, what, how he, 
he had all the components in his B3. So mm. if anybody still has one, you have to reverse engineer it to fix anything that goes wrong on it. So I have two that were <laughs> built by a guy in, in uh, Oakland who is pretty much retired now too. He's not in the best of health. Bob, his name is Bob Schleicher. His, uh, his, uh, his shop in Oakland is called, um, uh, electronic instrument service. I have two, we call them Schleicher chops. Uh, they look like keyboard products organs. It's a, um, he uses some Trek two, uh, parts in there, like Trek two preamp, I think for the salt, the solid state preamp or whatever it is. Uh, um, so I have two uh, cut down B3s. They're both set up for bass pedals. Uh, and I have a couple of uh, Bob Schleicher modified Leslie's. They're Biamp Leslie's JBL 15 uh, inch bass speaker. Uh, a Dayton 100 watt uh, treble driver with it. So the way they're Biamp is that you use a stock Leslie 40 watt. 30 40 watts leslie tube amp to drive the the high frequency driver so that it breaks up like a tube leslie and then originally there was uh a, there was a 300 watt solid state um uh amp to power the bass speaker that was a kind of a cheap it was a cheap import amp and so recently just this year our keyboard tech and i we got together on it and we've replaced We've re replaced both of the, the Leslie, the high power Leslie's amp, um, bottom amps with uh, five or 600 watt. Uh, actually, uh, I think one of them has got a, I think both of them have, uh, one has got a quilter, which is like a, was the parent company at QSC, a quilter, uh, 800 watt ba base amp in there. And the other one has, another so they've got two by by amp to leslie's we're um we have one on stage right behind me and then one back in an isolation booth uh back off stage in a um in a in a road case in an isolation case yeah. so hammond organ is always the most important thing it's about 80 percent hammond organ on any santana gig mm. uh i've gone through different uh pianos digital pianos i used a yamaha first i used a yamaha um uh, geez, let's see. Uh, a CP5, oh, yeah. which is pretty heavy. Yeah, that's had a Yamaha point. CP5. Then I got a Yamaha CP4, which is a lighter, and I thought it had better. Um, uh, it had more. It had more synthesizer sounds and stuff too, which was kind of good because I would use it for other things. But um, lately, I've uh, go. Don't tell Yamaha this, but um. For the last year or so, I've been using a, a Korg Grand Stage because oh, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. I like the uh, I like the action better, and I like the Yamaha CP4 had a lot of nice sounds, but once again, the Yamaha can be a little bit um, daunting in terms of uh, on the fly uh, editing and changing things while you're playing. Um, yep, the CP5 was better. You could actually adjust for like Fender road sounds or Wurlitzer sounds, you could change the speed of the vibrato with just a knob. Um, things like that were good, but on the CP four, cause it's a cheaper lower end, um, uh, model and lighter, much lighter. Uh, 
you can't, you, you've got to go through some screens to get into. Um, and I'm not, you know, I don't, you don't have time for that when you're playing, you got to go through some screens to change things. So I just kind of tried to set up the best sounds I could get on it. Now I have a, a core grand stage. What's cool about that is you can, um, <clears throat> you can adjust things. Uh, there's a lot, there's more buttons. It's got more of an analog layout where first of all, it has great Fender Rhodes and, um, Wurlitzer sound sets and some decent little synthesizer pad types of things and a couple little string sounds. So I use the, I use the, all, I always basically have three keyboards with the, uh, Santana, a Hammond organ, a digital piano. And, um, before I had a Yamaha Motif XF six. Now I have a Yamaha Montage, uh, seven, I use that mostly for strings and ancillary uh, synthesizer sounds like uh, um, just just different different things. Uh, uh, vibes. Oh, yeah. Use it for vibes. Use it for for uh, it, it, it's a Swiss Army knife. And actually, I use a digital piano generally for uh, acoustic piano, Fender Rhodes, Wurlitzer some clavinet, uh, keyboard instruments like that, occasional pad type things. Oh, and I actually also, I have a Farfisa. Okay. I added that about a year and a half ago. I have a Farfisa, right, cool. a red Farfisa combo compact. And the reason I have that is because Carlos has an interest in Afro, Afro beat music. And they use a lot of transistor uh, combo organs and that stuff. And he also, he likes the early 70s Miles stuff when Herbie oh, yeah. and Keith Jarrett and uh, were using whatever was the state of the art at the time, which they hated, but it was usually a Farfisa or a, uh, I think, I, I think Herbie played a Farfisa. I think uh, maybe, uh, yeah, so I got, I finally just said, listen, I got to stop trying to do this with my one synthesizer because yeah. I only have one synthesizer. I want to get a dedicated it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, um, finicky little cheap combo organ to take care of on the road. It's, it's, you know, kind of, it's not the most roadworthy instrument, but it's, it's been hanging in there and our keyboard tech has really been pretty good at taking care of it. He's a, he's a electronically very, uh, together. So I've got four keyboards now. Yeah. That Hammond B3 digital piano, one synthesizer and the, the Farfisa, the, the cheese, the cheese machine, <laughs> you know, the Farfisas are basically, it's basically just a, it's basically just a large, cheap electronic accordion for That's the right. most part, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They've got that really, that sort of really thin characteristic, uh, transistor organ sound. That's for sure. But, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, very, you got uh, the box. You got the, yeah. and that's the other thing too, is Carlos loves the doors. Okay. It's so funny. He'll, he'll say it a lot of times. He goes, you know what the hippest band in me was, you know, in the sixties, not this, not that. He goes, the doors, there's something about them that are so psychedelic. And I think it's the spoken word poetry thing. Yeah. And the, just the, they were very, uh, I mean, I grew up listening to them on the radio too. I mean, um, I mean, I was just a kid. I wasn't a teenager, but Carlos, I was, you know, seven or six, but I remember uh, those, those hits on the radio, you know, and personally, I never, <laughs> I think that 
I don't think Jim Morrison was a great singer. I mean, I think Billy Idol got his one lick from Jim Morrison and, uh, I think Billy Idol probably wins the the Jim Morrison uh the singing uh uh the lip sync contest but um but they had some you know they were they were progressive and uh and psychedelic at a time when that was kind of a new thing so I can I can see why Carlos digs them and I'm glad that I got the Farfisa now uh because I can try to evoke some of those vibes mm. for him and it's a lot easier doing it on there than it is to do it with a, a one keyboard, you know, one yeah. synthesizer, one little synthesizer, you know, you know, so there yeah, you go. That's, that's what I got. Yeah, that's great. And, and that brings me to my next question, Dave, and, and I'm going to set this up a bit by saying that having watched Santana when, when they've come here to Australia and uh, I've watched Santana play with CT and, uh, and I've watched um, them play with you twice. And one of the things oh. that really struck me as an audience member was the way or the stage configuration for your, your organ and your keyboards. And I'm just going to describe it to the listeners who may not have seen it. So Dave sets up, he's right at the front stage, right? Which is uh, to start with fairly unusual for a keyboard player to be right at the front of the band. He's right up at the front of the stage, but then his organ faces backwards towards the middle of the stage, almost not quite, but nearly at a 45 degree angle. And then he's got an L configuration and his, piano and his synthesizer is pointing out towards at an angle to the audience so yep. I, i'm interested david as to how that came about it's, it's quite unusual it looks pretty cool but i'm interested in in how you started and why you started doing it that way well when i joined the band i was always on stage right and i always wanted the organ pointing in because I play the organ on the majority of the music. Mm. I wanted yeah. the organ and I'm right next to Carlos. Carlos is just to my left. Yes. Um, when I'm, uh, and, um, when I'm facing out to the front, he's just to my left. So he's, you know, he's, he's to the, um, uh, and Carl Peraza. Well, Carl Peraza was next to me and then Carlos is, is next to him, uh, from the drums. I always generally, uh, whatever instrument that I'm going to be playing, the majority of my uh, parts, you could call them, or whatever the instrument I'm going to be playing the most with any given band, I want it facing in towards the rest of the musicians. And in this case, Carlos, I have to watch him a lot because he he changes things a lot while we're playing. We we take a lot of left turns and right turns, and um, uh, uh, we we uh, you know we go in different directions. Uh, there's a lot of just kind of verbal or, you know, uh, physical cues. He'll just wave, you know, or he'll start playing something. And so I got to follow him pretty closely. I, once again, I'm being an accompanist, just like I was with Etta. Carlos to me is like a singer. It's like, I, I approach playing with him. Like I approach accompanying a singer mm-hmm. trying to kind of create the atmosphere that he wants and give him the emotional, uh, pushback or feedback. So whatever he plays, I want to push back against that and either push him to play better or play, you know, whatever. So the organ is always facing inward in across the stage, basically really stage. I mean, some, you might've seen this when I was on a riser and they might've angled the riser a little bit, but really the organ is pretty much should be facing directly um, from my side of the stage, uh, stage right directly across the stage left the yes. piano 
when I first joined the band, um, things were angled a little bit more. And what I was finding is when I played piano, so right now the piano is, and the synthesizer are facing out directly towards the audience, but I can still look over my left to Carlos yes. and I can see him clearly if I look to my left. So it might be, the piano might be angled just a little bit slightly and maybe the riser with the organ, maybe, maybe all of it is angled just a little bit in uh, so that when I'm playing the piano, I don't, when I first started playing, we had the piano set up so that I had my back to the audience or, um, or my, it was kind of like my back was sort of to Carlos and I couldn't see what he was doing. And it was hard. I was starting getting a stiff neck trying to keep an eye on him. So, and right now, the only thing now, the Farfisa is facing directly back, um, behind to the, towards to the backstage. So when I'm playing that, I can still look over my right shoulder across the keyboards of the Hammond and I can see Carlos and the rest of the band, but my back is to the audience, but, but then I don't play, uh, it's, I don't use that instrument no. sometimes on a gig. I never use it at all, but then sometimes sure. I'll use it on two or three songs. So really the whole idea is to be able to, to keep, uh, to be able to see Carlos and accompany him and, um, also to be able to see the other musicians. Uh, as far as me being out in the front, that's just the way they, uh, because of the depth of the stage, that's just kind of the way they set it up. Sometimes I'm further back from the edge of the stage. I think the idea is that they like it where I'm kind of in line, uh, with Carlos when he's standing up front at his vocal mic and playing and also where his acoustic, they, they have an acoustic guitar set up for him on a stand. I'm usually kind of lined up with that so that we look right at each other when we're playing. And that's, mm. and then there, he has, there's a little, there's a little box that they put like at the front of the riser where if, when he wants to play some pretty stuff and, 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 um, get into his more of his ballad style playing, um, he'll sit down literally right it, in the corner between where the piano and synthesizer and the organ meet they put a little box right there, like a little place for him to sit and he'll sit there and he'll play sitting down. Uh, not the acoustic guitar. He plays his electric guitar that way. And that's when he's playing some more lyrical and uh, things and uh, melodic things and some jazzy things as opposed to him, like, you know, rocking out and, and, you know, going, you know, the full on uh, scream, you know, singing, screaming thing. That's when he's, when he's playing softer and he's playing prettier, he likes to sit there. And I think that's pretty cool because uh, it, it changes the atmosphere. Hmm. I, I'm right behind him. So once again, I'm accompanying him like, uh, like uh, if he was a singer or, or um, a horn player. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's visually Actually. interesting for the audience, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I like the, I like the dynamics of that a lot. Um, now, speaking of loving dynamics, Dave, I want to talk about briefly, we're on, we're on the home trio of questions here, but um, your Fantasy Vocal Sessions albums. So um, yes. you, you've got two volumes of them out. First one was out in 2018, um, sort of mostly jazz and acoustic influence, yep. and then the soul R&B one with volume two. Like, love these to bits. What, what made you, what was the impetus for you deciding to do those, and what have you got planned with them? Well, if you were... If, if you have, if you own physical CDs, the liner notes on both uh, 
volume sort of pretty clear about kind of what what my vision was and where what motivated me to um, do this in the first place. But just to make it uh, a quick, around 2007, I'd been playing with Etta for quite a while, and I had saved a little bit of money, and I and I thought, you know, I'd like to. It's been a, it's been quite a while since I made a record of my own. I'd like to make a record. And I'd like to make a record with some of uh, some of the some of my favorite singers that I've worked with. I I want to have Etta on it. I'd like to you know have Maria Moldauer on it, who I worked mm-hmm. with you know for a long time. Um, and others really, you know, Tony Lindsay, you know, was a, a who at that time, you know, just different singers that I work with. Basically, a lot of the people that are on both of those records, I was like saying to myself, well, I'd like to make, a, I'd like to make a record. And really, I just meant, I thought one record, just one record <laughs> and have each of my favorite singers sing maybe one song, uh, use some of my favorite players in the Bay Area for my own personal satisfaction and then um by the time it well and then and then you know Etta, Etta's health kind of fell apart the economy fell apart mm. what savings i had which is really not that much but it was would have been enough to get started on the yeah. project i lost my say i lost my savings i had no money i was really struggling uh until i got the santana gig um, and then when I got the Santana, cause I, with Etta, I'd played with her for 20 years and suddenly, uh, someone that I had, uh, made, uh, half to two thirds of my yearly income. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have, I wasn't working with her anymore and I was really having uh, trouble making ends meet. Right. So the whole idea of making a record went out the window. Then I got the Santana gig. I started making some good money and in the back of my mind, I w- I was thinking, well, Ed is by 2012 or 2013, I was saying, well, Ed is gone now and God, I really wish she could have been on this, but I'd still like to make a record with, you know, people that I love in, uh, and have influenced me in the Bay area. So it's, it's really the whole series and there's two and I, I, I plan for there to be at least two more. Mm. Um, and it's eclectic. The first record was straight ahead, uh, straight ahead, a uh, jazz standards album. Second record is, is uh, soul and rhythm and blues. I have a lot of uh, tracks recorded with some of the people from the first two uh, for volume three. Um, it's going to be more straight blues. Right. Um, and then volume four, I also have some tracks that I recorded last year. Um, with some of the guys in the Santana band that I'd also like to have Carlos play on a couple of tunes. And he, he actually said that he would be, he would, he, he expressed an interest in doing that. That would be the Afro Cuban and Brazilian right. uh, record yeah. with all of my favorite people here in the Bay area and maybe some uh, nationally known uh, people as well. It's just, I love all those kinds of music. I love every kind of music really, uh, whether it's, mm. uh, you know, any version, various kinds of middle Eastern music to, music from India or music from Brazil or, or China or, or, you know, different music from the United States or the Caribbean. Some things I'm better at playing than others. I love reggae. I've played on, I've played on a couple of reggae albums many years ago. Uh, but um, it was just something that I don't know if you call it, it's a, a, a legacy type of a project. It started out as just, I wanted to do some things with, people that I cared about and I thought it was just going to be one record, but then 
once I started really working on it in 2015 and recording some of these tracks, I, I pretty, uh, I went into fantasy, uh, which is closed now fantasy studios in Berkeley, um, which was, we, it's known as the home that Credence built because it was <laughs> Credence clear water revivals, uh, success. Uh, and I believe it was the movie, uh, they had a film division too. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Wow. Was there for Amadeus. Uh, there was the Saul Zantz, um, company, uh, Amadeus. I see one flew over the cuckoo's nest and, and credence was pretty much the, yeah. I think the impetus that launched fantasy records the, and the studios. Well, the studio closed about two years, years ago. Um, sadly, but I recorded in four days. I went into the studio and I recorded about ten to twelve tunes a day, uh, in a, in a eight to ten hour session. I with uh, about twenty, eh, about fifteen singers actually, and um, so I sat. Still have some tracks left. So originally, I thought I was going to make one record uh, back in two thousand and seven, and then in two thousand and fifteen, I realized, well, there's no way that's going to happen i'm gonna have to make several records and i recorded about 35 tunes uh, in four days might have been maybe 40 tunes but um and as now as you see volume one and volume two there's i think there's that's maybe 26 tunes Mm -hmm. right there and i have about i have about maybe seven or eight jazz uh tunes from the first two days of recording left and i have um about uh, six or seven blues things from the third and fourth days of re- recording, but I'm going to have to augment those with some recording done at my place here or at another, st- another studio, yeah. because of course fantasy doesn't exist, yeah. but I'd like to put out two more, uh, two more, um, volumes and the name and the fantasy vocal sessions. It, it's, uh, it was originally the idea was it's based on fantasy studios, yeah, yeah. but now that the studio is gone, it's like, Oh, Hey, I was going to have a four or five CD set, but now the studio's gone. How can I call it that? Well, I'm just going to, because it's also, it was kind of my fantasy to do. That's um, right. So it's a, it's, it's a play on words. That it was well. my fantasy to, it's a love, it's a love letter to Bay area music and all of the great influences in our diverse culturally diverse um, area here surrounding the San Francisco Bay that, that has helped me to become the musician that I am today. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I can't recommend highly enough to our, our listeners to have a listen to these and we'll be linking to them in the show notes. So yeah, they're, in, they're incredible pieces of work and looking forward to the, the next installments. And it feels a bit um, blasphemous, Dave, to, to go on to the next question, which is one we ask every guest, which is the biggest train wreck you've had on stage. So some awful thing that's happened to you, it doesn't matter which band or artist, just something you've never forgotten. Oh my goodness. Uh, okay. Well, let's see. Uh, hmm. That's interesting because, well, no, it's funny because I don't, um, generally, I'm a pretty positive person and I try not to take, uh, uh, I mean, I God, I'd have to think over the years. I mean, I know there were negative, um, 
things that have happened to me musically over the years that caused me a great anxiety, <laughs> but offhand, offhand, um, none of them have stuck with me to the point. I mean, I don't remember ever like being so mortified where somebody was like, Hey, you mother, uh, you know, playing you know, you suck. I don't remember anything like that, <laughs> but I was, uh, I, but I, this, this, um, Oops. Whoa, that's weird. I don't know why that's going off. Oh, yep. There we go. Um, I can't, it's funny. I was just talking to, uh, uh, Pete Escovito and, uh, one of his kids the other day, um, cause I did a gig with them on Saturday. This is kind of humorous. It was, it was somewhat traumatic at the time, but it was, I'd say it was humorous. Uh, uh, I was playing with Pete Escovito at the, uh, at the Herbst theater in San Francisco, pretty well, pretty, mm. uh, pretty nice venue. Uh, H E R B S T or B yeah. S T Herbst theater. It, uh, this is maybe 10 years ago, uh, playing with the, the Pete Escovito Latin jazz orchestra. And I had a, uh, kind of a big rubato piano intro on this, on one of their big songs of the set where I get a chance to stretch out and play some uh, Spanish influenced kind of stuff, quasi classical. Yeah. You know? And, um, and, uh, I was, uh, and you know, it, it could be, it could be long. It could be, it could be a minute. Mm. It could be a minute and a half. It could be two minutes if, if, if it really gets going well. So I remember playing, um, you know, playing some stuff, some classic, classically classical influenced things uh, building up to a nice uh you know conclusion um and really felt really good like wow this is creative you know i think i'm getting i'm getting the message across that people yeah. are feeling the gypsy you know the 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 gaetano vibe you know the uh, uh you know and i'm trying to be like a classical pianist like horowitz or somebody who uh, of course i really admire like a lot of those mm. men and women uh and so i'm playing this i played this good intro long story short i played this good intro it's getting really good it's, it's building up i'm building it up and i get to the the climactic point of my uh my introduction and i and i go to this big crescendo and i go dong, 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 after playing all this virtuosic stuff and i go boom 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 on the piano and right as i do that the stand breaks <laughs> the piano is still attached to the cables it dumps it it the stand breaks it literally breaks uh it goes <laughs> and the piano is dumped halfway into my lap halfway on the floor it's still plugged in and it's a digital piano uh and in in the process of falling uh the demo button goes on <laughs> whatever it, it, it was a roll i think it was a rolling the demo button goes on i'm done playing and like the piano is falling i'm trying to keep it from landing completely on the floor it's still plugged in i'm in front of like you know 800 people in this beautiful theater the band is was waiting for me to finish till we could start the song um and the piano just halfway on the floor, halfway on my lap. I'm holding on to it 
and it's playing by itself. And I'm going, what the hell is going on here? I'm looking at it. These lights are flashing and it's, it's, it's playing some silly demo song. It might've been a classical song. It might've been some silly pop song that some guy had put into or woman had, you know, whoever had put into the, uh, into the thing. Cause you know, a lot of these digital pianos, they have a bunch of demos. You hit a That's button right. and it'll play this thing and then it'll play that thing. So the demo's going And First of all, I never have ever used any of that stuff on this particular keyboard because I just, for me, it's just a piano. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I never had really, uh, uh, investigated any of those extra extra features that the thing had and so the thing is playing by itself and i'm looking at it and i'm the band's looking at me the audience is looking at me and i'm like what the hell and i'm and the buttons the lights are flashing and so i'm trying to frantically uh find how do i turn this thing off uh how do i make it stop doing what it's doing it took me maybe i don't know maybe it took me 15 20 30 seconds. I don't know. <laughs> longest, uh, and longest seconds of my life. And, um, uh, and then the, and then, and then the band started the song and you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, we didn't have a crew or anything. I'm, I'm like fixing my stand and trying to put this thing back on there. I don't even remember what I had it on my lap or something, but by that point, <laughs> so that was pretty funny. It was, uh, it, you know, it would have been amusing if you'd been there. And then of course, uh, I was talk I was talking to Pete and uh, uh one of his sons the other night about this but and it's like uh people would kid me about that uh afterwards uh, for uh, quite a while. I love that. It was unexpected, you know. It was definitely unexpected. That is gold. But it wasn't my that, fault. That, that the, is a... the stand broke. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I'm sure it would have been amu- it would have been amusing. I I don't recall when a when a, a band leader per se has been um has necessarily humiliated me off, oh, no. on and stage this, while uh, i was playing that's right. and this is more now what you've just described there is the perfect train wreck that's more what we'd like to to find out about so that that was brilliant that's the first ever demo song one too i think that's just absolutely funny as oh yeah it, it, the thing was playing i don't know it was playing some um Piece, but it was and it was loud and it, and I was like and I'm I'm holding the thing in my lap and I'm hearing all of this sound come out and of course it didn't register to me I'm like what you know it didn't it took a few seconds yeah, and yeah. I realized wait this thing is playing this thing's playing by itself now what do I do <laughs> so uh, yeah it was uh, good times as we say here good times feedback to Roland don't make the demo button so easy to hit when you're trying to save your yeah exactly yes. stand. <laughs> exactly I think that might have been a Roland FP4 right uh, that's all I had at that time an FP, FP4 or an FP7 I think it might have been an FP4 that got stolen out of my car uh, at the time when I only had I didn't have enough money for another digital piano and that and I liked it. It was a, it had a, it had a nice action actually, and it had decent piano sounds at the time. Um, but yeah, that demo button, woo. <laughs> yes, uh, that, 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 there you go. It's it's funny we um, we sometimes talk about those demo buttons and why we even need to have them, to be honest. But uh, there you go. Great story. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. Now we're I coming think they to need the. a. Uh, I think they need a, a little 
a little handguard on them, you know, so you don't. I reckon they do. Hundred uh, percent. I reckon yeah. they do. So, yep. so we're, we're now heading to the last question that vexes all of our yep. guests, which is our Desert Island Discs question. And we would love you to okay. share with us, if you can, five records that if you're stuck on a desert island, you could not live without. And they can be really anything you like to listen to, any style at all. Okay. Uh, well, let's see. I think that this is going to be fairly easy. Uh Wow. Uh, okay. Uh, first of all, anything by Art Tatum would be number one. Yep. Um, and that could be any of the Pablo stuff, any of the Decca stuff. It's got to have, if you're a pianist, I mean, as a pianist for me, you got to have one Art Tatum record. Wow, God, it's going to be two Brazilian records. That's only going to leave me two records. Uh, woo, man, yeah. Uh, okay, I'm going to have to decide. It's going to have to be one. Uh, uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim and Elise Regina, Elise and Tom. Maybe number two. Cool. Coming from a keyboard perspective, from a, it's like, uh, yeah, it's going to have to be uh, one of Jimmy Smith's Blue Note albums from the mid to late fifties. And I'd have to get specific with you on that, but, uh, that's okay. We'll approximate one. That's no problems. Yeah, it could be, could be, there's, there's several, um, there's, there's a, there's a bunch. Uh, okay. That's three. All right. Wow. This is going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to be leaving out a lot of people here, but, uh, <laughs> For me, uh, Donny Hathaway live in performance, and not Donny Hathaway live, but Donny Hathaway live in performance on Atlantic. Uh, um, and that's, I got to have at least one singer because on the last one, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to go back to pianists. All right. Uh, and man, that's like, all right. For me, it won't be that hard. Alicia de la Rocha, the Iberia Suites, her first recording from the late 1950s. I believe it's in mono. Um, the Iberia Suites were uh, Isaac Albanus. Isaac Albanus, uh, it's a suite of 10 Spanish, uh, it's cl Spanish classical uh, it, it's uh, he was a Spanish pianist and classical composer, uh, a Spanish nationalist composer, if you will. God, I'm leaving out a lot of stuff. You know, you're yeah, leaving out Horowitz, <laughs> Richter, Rubinstein. Uh, you're leaving out Fats Waller, Ray Charles, Professor Longhair, James Booker, Billy Preston. The oh God, and I but I left out the Beatles. Yeah, Gotta that's all right. Oh. Be Beatles are common as can mud, start, David, can we, in can, top desert can we, island can we, can we? Can we do... Uh, can, oh, my God. You get, um, David, just very quickly, you get an honorary sixth. We do have to wrap up. You get an honorary sixth pick because a lot of our guests do do that. They pick six. It's got to be... Um, uh, well, for me, it's got to be... Uh, just because my brother, you know, the Beatles... Well, I, and I just, I have to go, I have to say this. Uh, to me, the Beatles 
and Stevie Wonder are the greatest. Um, I don't want to use the word pop, but uh, pop, yeah, popular uh, writers mm. and artists uh, of the last uh, half a century or, or more. Um, and so I'd have to say, uh, if I get an honorary six, my my brother had Magical Mystery Tour when I was growing okay. up. And I'm just going to put that one out there. Yeah. Magical pick. Mystery Tour. I got to put a Stevie Wonder album, but everything he did on, everything he did on, on, uh, you know, on um, uh, Motown in the, during the golden age from about 1971 to about 1980, every record he made is, is incredible. I just got to put that out there too, because they're, uh, you know, really, and if I had to be on a desert island and there was nothing else, I'd have to say it would probably have to be the Beatles and Stevie Wonder. Yeah. If it was just two, if I had two choices, because both of those artists, both of those, there's such an incredible range there that encompasses all different kinds of music. Yeah, that's right. You know? no, great, great picks, Dave, and they, they're certainly eclectic, which is what I'd expect, no less given your own eclectic and versatile career. And I can't thank you enough for taking the huge time you have with us today. It's been an absolute honour talking with you. Um, you're one of those guests that we could easily devote 10 episodes to and don't be surprised if I annoy you down the track <laughs> for a follow-up episode. But it has been absolutely I'd be very brilliant. happy to do that. I'm sorry I'm sorry for going over by no, 41 not at minutes. All. <laughs> That's not a problem at all. It's, it's absolutely no, we, we've, really in, we, we've really enjoyed it and thanks for being so generous with your time and with your thoughts, Dave. It's been absolutely wonderful. Well, it's my pleasure, and I can't wait to get back over there and visit your lovely country again. And uh, um, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, if things uh, get better, um, well, we have a European tour uh, scheduled in in March, and um, we haven't been to Asia since uh, 2017. Mm. But I'll just say Asia or the Pacific, the Pacific region. But um, uh, uh, we had a, our, our last last summer, we had a, a major U.S. tour book with Earth, Wind & Fire, Double Bill. Wow. And as far as I know, at this, and that was through Live Nation. And as far as I know, at this point, um, everything has been moved to this next summer. So right. and that would be a, a, touring the U.S. Last year, we toured the U.S. all summer with the Doobie Brothers. And this year it was going to be uh, it was going to be. Um, uh, First one of fire, and that's still on the books as of this time. No, great stuff. So I don't know when I'm going to get down under, but I hope it's sooner than later. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, no, the feeling is mutual, and we look forward to yeah, Thank you. definitely coming and seeing your great work. So, yeah, no, lovely speaking with you. So, Paul, I said um, in the introduction that uh, David K. Matthews had had a brilliant career, and I think for those that have listened to both parts now, it's a bit hard to refute that. Yeah, absolutely, and clearly a fixture in the Bay Area music scene for multiple decades, but his reach and influence clearly spreads far beyond that as well. It's just amazing, and, um, yeah, I just I think we could have gone on for another two hours and, and still had an absolute ball, so... Huge thank you to David for spending all that time with us. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, what a gentleman. Um, yeah, really good. So once again, we will be back again in two to three weeks. But just a reminder 
again also. I've used again about four times in that sentence. Um, you can keep in touch via a few means. So our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. We're at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. On Twitter at twitter.com the keyboard chr1. Uh, and if you like good old-fashioned email, then drop us a line at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. For those not on Twitter, get on Twitter just for Rick Wakeman. He alone's worth joining Twitter for. Um, if you'd like to become an official supporter, we do have a Patreon account where for the price of a coffee a month, you can help us go from strength to strength. And that's at patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. Paul, thank you again, sir. Always appreciate it. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, David. And to our wonderful listeners, thanks as always for listening and we'll see you back here next episode.